0: Okay, so friends, today we are continuing in our sermon series, the book of Genesis. We're still in chapter 1. And last week, if you are with us, you might remember that the point of God writing Genesis chapter 1 wasn't to give a holistic, exhaustive explanation about how the world was made. Okay, that wasn't his goal. If that was his goal, just imagine how long of a book that would be. It would be impossible to put it all down. Rather, the goal that God had for writing Genesis chapter 1 is not to tell us the how things were made, but the why things were made, the why the world was made. Okay, why, why does all this exist? And we see it's for him. He's the beginning, he's, he's the reason, he's the why that everything is created for, that everything in creation is for. And today, as we take a look at day six and seven of the creation account, we're told about the origin story of two more things in creation. That's supposed to also connect to him as the why what are those two things ourselves and our work ourselves and our work day six and seven of creation humans were made and then we're given jobs to do now this is absolutely relevant for for everyone i mean you could be here today and you're a working professional you could be here today and you're a stay-at-home mom stay-at-home dad You're here today and you're a student at school. Maybe you're a single person with no job. It doesn't matter because the question, who am I and does what I do make me enough? Who am I and does what I do make me enough? That question affects us all. It affects everything about our lives. It affects the way we work. It affects the way we spend time with our family. It affects our social enterprise. It affects the way we feel about ourselves. It haunts us all and if we're honest that question could also become the material that often our internal roller coasters are made out of can't it who am I and is what I'm doing enough and God here in our passage is saying let me help you make sense of all of that let me help you make sense of who you are and your work and how they connect to one another and hopefully by seeing the answer could help us relate with these two things, better. Okay, let's get to it. This is God's word. Take it from Genesis chapter one, verse twenty-six, to Genesis chapter two, verse three. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish and of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth." So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish, and of the sea, and over the birds, of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant, yielding seed, that it is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Thus says the Lord. There are three things that I want to point out for the passage today. One, being at rest with yourself and with your work, number two, all depends on how you rest yourself in God. Being at rest with yourself and with your work all depends on how you rest yourself in God let's start with our first point being at rest with with ourselves so the question looms is who are we who are you okay, based on this biblical story well verse 26 tells us that we are those who are made in the image and likeness of God and if you remember last week when we preached on the beginning part of Genesis When God made the plants, for example, what did he say? He said that they were made according to their own kind. And then God made the fish and it said that they were made according to their own kind. And God made the birds and it said they were made according to their own kinds. And God made the land animals. And God said they're all made according to their own kind. But then here we get the Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. And we see God make mankind. And he said what? He didn't say, let us make him in their own kind. Let us make man not according to their own kind, but in our image. So there's a distinction about us, Genesis 1 is saying here, than the rest of creation. What are they? What's the distinction? What makes us as image bearers different uh, from the rest of creation where there's so many things and there's so many speculations, and I'm just going to play it safe, okay, and I'm going to talk about the things that we see here from From this passage specifically we're going to talk about male and female later when we go to genesis chapter 2 and talk about adam and eve i'm going to save that for then but for now let's take a look at these few things first i think we see from this passage that being made in god's image unlike the animals it means that we have the capacity for some sort of interpersonal relationship with god look at verse 28 after god blessed us what did he do he spoke to us it says, be fruitful and multiply. God spoke to us. Now, that's an important detail because He doesn't do this to the rest of creation. He doesn't speak to him like this. When God blessed the birds in verse 22, for example, He did speak, but it didn't say that He spoke to them. It just said that He generally said, you see, He generally spoke, be fruitful and multiply. He didn't speak to them. But to humans here in verse 28, there's a glaring difference after God blessed them, it says, he spoke, he conversed, he related, he communed, he interacted with them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. You know, there are tons of similarities between us and the animals. That's, that's pretty obvious. And Genesis chapter 1 here appreciates those similarities as well. Us and land animals, for example, were both made in the sixth day. We're both creatures. Don't forget that God saying uh, verse 30 says we both have the need to eat we both have the ability to reproduce there's so many similarities but throughout history you know the one thing that animals one glaring difference between humans and animals is that animals have never ever ever seemed to display the ability nor the desire for worship you don't see that they don't have religions this, this need to commune, to speak, to talk to the transcendent, to the divine. You don't see that. But as long as humans have existed, we've always had that urge. Religion pops up in every culture, in every age. Why is that? Well, Genesis 1 here claims, because unlike animals, we're made in the image of God. We're created with the capacity to commune, to speak, to relate with God as his image bearers. That's the first thing. But the main thing, perhaps, of what it means to be made in God's image is that distinct to animals, we have here, we see, a unique and glorious sense of self about us. We have a unique and glorious value connected to us. Where do we see that? Go to verse 27. Notice verse 27 in your Bibles. They're indented. Okay? Why is that? Because the literary style switched all of a sudden. The literary style changed. Before this, it was all narrative, 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 narrative. And then suddenly, in verse 27, it turned into what's called a chiasm. What's a chiasm? A chiasm is a poetic sandwich. That's the easiest way to explain it, a poetic sandwich. So imagine a sandwich in your head. There's bread. There's the stuff that you actually want to eat. And then there's bread. Okay? That's what a chiasm is. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image... In the image of God, he created them. Created man, created man, image in his image, okay? That's old school poetry. It's kind of like what happened when Adam first met Eve. You remember that? In Genesis chapter two, same thing. Narrative, 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 and then Adam saw Eve for the first time, and what happened? Mere words turned to poetry. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Two times in the creation account, were mere words deemed insufficient to describe what's going on when Adam first laid eyes on Eve and when God created human beings on earth. Now, what does this have to do with my worth and and my value? Well, friends, let me ask you, when do mere words feel insufficient to you Husbands, this would be an opportune time, if you're smart, to look at your wives. Boyfriends, go ahead, look at your girlfriends. When do words feel insufficient to you? When love's involved. There's a loveliness about you, God's saying here. There's a dignity about you that goes beyond the beast and the critters. No matter how majestic anything else in all creation may be, none of them are made in God's image. There is less glory in the rising sun, Genesis 1 here is saying, than the day that your life begun. You're special. You're worthy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You know what it will do to us if we really did believe that? Oh, so many things. First of all, it will make us treat each other so much better, wouldn't it? James chapter 3, verse 9, what does it say? James rebukes us there, and he says, With the same tongue we bless God, but yet curse those who are made in God's image. What's what's the rebuke here? What James is trying to say is that our problem is that we're inconsistent. We bless God, but we curse those who are made in his image. How can we do that? We treat him flippantly, disrespectfully, you know. We pick and choose who we extend dignity to. Why? Because we fail to see God's image in every single person. Your helpers at home. Your cab drivers. Your employees. Your boss, maybe. The person pushing that cart causing traffic jam. They are more glorious than the rising sun. Every single one of them. Do you believe Genesis 1 is authoritative? Then you should believe in that. But if you believe in this, not only will we treat others better, we'll treat ourselves better too. Oh, my. You know, Genesis 9 says this. It's interesting. If anyone commits a murder, that person deserves the death penalty. That's what it says. Why? Because when that person commits that murder, what that person did is that they destroyed God's image. They destroyed the image of God. That's where they must be put to death. That's Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 says. But think about it. Here's the thing. When was Genesis 9 written? It was written after we sinned. It was written after we fell. It was written after we broke God's image in us. So put two and two together, you know what that means? This means that even after the fall, even after we've sinned, even after we've failed miserably, there still remains an image of God within us all that sin cannot fully delete because there's still a consequence for destroying God's image post-fall, post-sin. So no matter how worthless you might feel about yourself right now, no matter what you've done, no matter how, what kind of sin you fall into, what, whatever it is you think you lack, there is still an inerrant value about you that will never disappear. It will never disappear. Sin might have marred God's image. It might have shattered it, but it never deletes it. It's there. It doesn't matter what your feelings tell you. It's there. That's what God's saying. See, the reason why we treat other people so poorly and the reason why we so often have this numbing sense of worthlessness is because we've forgotten the imago Day. We've forgotten the image of God. We've cast God aside as our why. We've cast him aside as our source of value, our source of worth. So, you know what we're left with now? I'll tell you. We're left with the impossible task of self defining. It's up to us now. We scrounge around this earth, we scrounge around other created things to define who we are. And oh, what a gruesome task that is! It's so exhausting. It's so tiring, why? Because everything that we use as our why, everything that we end up putting our worth and value in, we end up destroying our relationship with that thing. Let me give us an example. If we use our kids and their success, and their good looks, and their accomplishments on earth, if we use them as our ultimate sense of self, as, as the place in which we rest all of our worth in, you know what we'll do? We'll crush him. We'll absolutely crush him. Parents, yes, our kids are meant to make us happy. But listen here. It is not our kids' jobs to make us ultimately happy. That's not between us and them. That's between us and the Lord. We'll crush him. If we use our friends as our ultimate place where we find happiness and worth in, what happens? We'll, we'll tire them out. If we use our romantic partner as our alternate source of worth and value, we'll smother them. We'll become overbearing. Some of you might have experienced that. Why? Because we're expecting too much from these things. We're, we're expecting these things to do something only the Imago Dei can. They can't do it. And you know, the one thing that I've seen To be a popular place in which all of us find our worth and value in, including myself, is not just our kids or our romantic partner or our social circles. It's our work, our jobs, our careers. That often becomes a place where we find our sense of self. leads us to our second point, being at rest with our work. I don't have to approve that. I don't have to explain that. We know this. We feel this every day, don't we? And like everything else, when we make our work, our job, our careers as our alternate source of self-worth, we destroy our relationship with it in so many ways. Let me just point two ways. In one hand, you might end up overworking. You'll overwork. Why? Because work now is all about gain, 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 and take, 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 and more, more, more. And people get into so much trouble doing that. And we have to. I have. But why do we do that? Well, because if we think that our earthly net worth is a reflection of our actual net worth, then when is it ever enough? When is it ever enough? We're going to take, take, and gain, gain, and everything's going to be about that. So you might overwork. But another danger is you might end up underworking. You might overwork, you might underwork. What do I mean? So some of you know, growing up, I played, I played tennis a lot. I try to play competitively. And sometimes, my mom knows this, that before tournaments, okay, and I'd play a match and I'll see the name of who I'm playing and I'm like, oh man, first seed, there's no way I'll beat them, you know? My coach is like give me a tap at the back going, just try your best, you know, kind of thing. So I go and I play, and you know what I do? I would tank. You know what tank is? Tank is when you uh, play as if you don't care. You play as if you're not trying. You know, so I'm like, I'm hitting a forehand, hits and I'm like, whatever, not trying anyways. Hit a backhand, do a double fall, I'm like, pff, not even, I'm not even in this, you know. Why, why do I do that? Why do we do that? Well, I do that because I know the task in front of me is just way too big for me to beat. It's way too big for me to overcome. There's no way I'm going to win. I'm just not going to try. When we make work to be a replacement of the imago day, that's a task way too big. It's not meant to be that. We'll never win doing that. So, you know what we do? We just we don't try, we underwork. See, externally, that may look like laziness, but internally, it's actually a sense of defeat. Defeated. Why try? Okay, Both overworking and underworking, where you say, more, 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 take, 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 or I'm just not even going to try. They're both attempts to what? They're both attempts to protect our sense of self from pain, from feeling worthless. But if your sense of self is already secure in the fact that you're made in God's image, that's more than enough. Oh my, that's That's more than enough to define you, to give you dignity and worth. You know what will happen to your work? It will stop being about you. And it will start being about the thing that God meant it to be here, which is, it's not about us, but it's to create culture for God. It's to create culture for God. Let me explain what I mean there, and then I'll show you where in the passage I got that from, okay? Let me talk about what I mean first. What does it mean to create culture? Good culture, of course, assumed here. To create culture is to take the raw materials God's given us, collect them, to arrange them, order them, combine them in such a way to where we can present out of it a symphony of good. To create culture is to use all of God's resources, the raw materials he's given us, to arrange it and combine it in such a way to bring about from it a symphony of good, okay? Um, now, where do we see that in the passage? Look at verse 31. What did God do there? Okay, he listed out the whole ecosystem of his creation in verses 28 to 30. He listed, all: oh, I made this, I made this, I made that, I made this, this is how it all works together. And then in verse 31, he said that it was very good. Very good, not just good. And if you remember last week, after God made each individual item in creation, he called each item good. He made the birds in the sky, he said good. Fish in the sea, good. He made the expanse between the heavens and the waters, and he said good. But here, God saw the whole of his creation, the combined order and arrangement of it all, and he called that symphonic whole very good. But, stick with me here, this symphonic good only occurred in in one place on earth at a time. We'll see that in Genesis chapter 2 later, more explicitly, in, in, in the garden that Adam and Eve is called to work and keep. Okay? It hasn't really filled the whole earth yet. And humans here are called to extend this symphonic good found in this garden to eventually fill and subdue what verse 28 says. The earth. The whole earth. That's what work is for, to subdue the earth with a symphonic good orchestrated out of all the various raw materials that God's given you. In other words, creating good culture. Now, let me make this more practical. Okay, let me give you some examples of, of, of what some of the things that make up our culture. What, what are those things? What things make up our culture? Well, one of my favorite things about culture is the food, the cuisine. I feel like my sermon illustrations have all become about food recently. don't know why. But isn't that true? Good food makes the culture. What is food, though? Think about it. When a chef does what? When a chef takes the raw materials God's given him and arrange them in such a way that brings about a symphony of good in a dish A symphony of good that each individual ingredient couldn't have produced on its own. He does that, and all of a sudden, what do we have? We have rendang. We have pasta. We have lo mein. We have culture. What else makes up our culture? How about books? What's a good book? A good book is an author taking the raw materials of words... And stories perhaps, arranging them all together to bring about a symphony of good. How about good music? What's music? Music is a musician taking the raw material of sound and arranging them in such a way that brings about a symphony of good. But, Tez, I'm not an artist. Okay. What's venture capital? Oh, that one. Too bad. If you're in venture capital. You can't do good culture. Of course you can. What is that? That's taking the raw material of currency and arranging it with the raw material of someone's talent, bringing them together to create a symphony of good, namely return on investment, which hopefully you can use for further good. How about what I do? I preach, try to at least. What is preaching? It's taking the raw material of God's word and arrange it, not modify it, but arrange it in such a way that brings about a symphony of good. Last one, I promise. What's being a stay-at-home parent? Is that work? Absolutely. Being a stay-at-home parent is to order the raw material called a human child, or at least try our best to, and arrange their lives in such a way that'll bring about a symphony of good that reflects the character of God that mirrors God. Friends, work is a beautiful thing. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's not a terrible thing. You know, uh, I don't know, you guys know the story of the Pandora's box, you know, uh, that box filled with all that evil. Um, not supposed to open it, but this one person opened it, and out of it came all the evil. The myth says there's pain, there's death, there's illness, there's old age, and there's work. Work. It's a painful thing. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be good. God was mentioned as working. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it didn't say, in the beginning, God. You know what it said? In the beginning, God created. So you, can't, you can't disconnect God from His work, and we're made in the image of this Creator. And no wonder the first thing we're called to do here after we're created is to work, to do something. Whether you're a professional, a student, a stay-at-home parent, working is a huge part of what it means to be human, to be made in God's image. But the reason why work is so hard, is so painful today, is because we no longer make work an implication of the Imago Dei. Work is no longer an outpouring, a result of being made in God's image. We instead use it to replace God's image. We use it as an alternate, as a substitute for the Imago Dei. And now, it's no longer about culture-making. It's about me. It's about my self-worth. You know, recently we had the Golden Globes Awards. I don't know, I didn't watch it, but I just know we had it. And it reminded me of a few years ago at another Golden Globes Award, where Jim Carrey, you guys know who Jim Carrey is, right? Okay, Ace Ventura, all right, checking. Jim Carrey was called up there to give an award for the Golden Globes. And you know, as presenters walk up to the mic, The voiceover would go to introduce the person who's coming up. So it went, you know, please welcome two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And he walks to the stage, and he gets to the mic, and he says, Hello, everyone. My name is two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And, you know, he's being sarcastic here, as Jim Carrey does. Um, You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just some guy going to sleep at night. I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-deserved shut-eye. And when I dream at night, I don't dream just any old dream. No, sir. He says, I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner, actor, Jim Carrey, and everybody's laughing. And then he said, because then I would be enough. Because then I would be enough. And everyone's laughing hysterically because, you know, he's doing some dark humor here, but they're also laughing uncomfortably, which is kind of what makes it more funny, right, when something uncomfortable gets brought out of the open. But why the discomfort? Because deep inside, even these successful Hollywood actors, deep inside, they all sense Jim Carrey put his finger on a very uncomfortable question that apparently even they felt, and it's this, based on my work, am I enough? Am I enough? Based on what I've accomplished in life, am I enough? See, work's no longer about God-centered culture-making. It's become an alternate source of self-worth. No wonder we're all tired. (laughs) No wonder we're all exhausted. Not just physically, but existentially. Which leads us to our last point. Being at rest with yourself and with your work all depends in how you rest yourself in God okay let's go back to our passage okay God made everything on the sixth day Genesis chapter 2 1 then says on the seventh day God did what he rested he rested now obviously this isn't a physical rest God doesn't get tired like that so why did he rest here well one it's an act of self-exaltation, okay? which if you're God, you get to do. Okay? Imagine a skilled painter sitting back, looking at his completed work of art and saying, it's finally finished. It's finished, and it's really good. It's very good. Self-exaltation. Two, he did it to show his uniqueness. Back then, we saw last week how Genesis 1 was written literary to to be a polemic or to be a a thing against the other ancient Mesopotamian gods. This is another one of them. Back then in ancient Mesopotamia, the seventh day for some reason was considered bad luck. The seventh day was considered cursed. So day seven, 14, 21, 29, you know, considered cursed days. But God here saved day seven to be the best day. And he's trying to make a point here. He's arranged even the world's calendar, he's saying, to display how holy he is how different he is than any other false gods out there. Remember, last week, we said holy is not only just moral purity, but it's complete, utter otherness, differentness. He blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, verse 2 says. He's different, okay? And his people are meant to follow this pattern that shows how he's different, to rest on the seventh day, which is exactly the third reason of why, of of the point of resting in the seventh day here. It's a pattern for his image bearers to follow. When God gave us the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, do you remember what commandment number four says? It says, keep the Sabbath day holy, rest. But then do you remember why it said to do that? It says, for in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. You are called to do it because God did it. We rest on the seventh day because we're made in the image of a God who also rested in the seventh day. It's a pattern to follow. Now, let me just connect this whole sermon together, okay? Let me just kind of reword the three points we have today. Being God's image bearers means, one, we know we have tremendous value and worth, and we're at rest with ourselves. Two, because of that, our work will no longer be about us. It will no longer be about us dominating the world, taking more, me, me, me. It will be about making a symphony of good for God's glory and and, and infiltrating the culture with God's glory, you're at rest with your work, with yourself, with your work. Third, because your work isn't about you anymore, you know what you're going to be able to do now. You're going to be able to take a break. You're going to be able to rest. When's the last time you just ate lunch to eat lunch? No one just eats lunch anymore. Like we always got to do something. <laughs> When's the last, what, what happened to rest? When work's not all about us, we're finally able to take a break and follow God's pattern of Sabbath rest, which is what we're commanded to do here. Take a break. Knowing your worth in God will make you better workers and better resters in the way God's told us to here. Here's what this passage is saying. It's saying this. Look, you know why your hands can't rest? Because your souls aren't resting. Because your souls aren't at rest. We've cast aside the imago Dei, and now we're constantly asking ourselves, am I enough? How do I know am I enough? What do I have to show for that I'm enough? Never rest with ourselves, with our work. Even when you're sleeping at night, right before you sleep, what's your mind doing? What's your soul doing? It's running, it's thinking, it's not resting. At the holiday, who of you here went to the beach? Was your soul as at rested as your bodies were? Probably not if you're like me. We're never at rest. What we need, as a pastor once put it, is not just physical rest. What we need is a rest within the rest, an REM sleep of the soul, he said. That can only be produced when our hearts are convinced that we truly are enough. But where can we find that now that we've sinned? Not that we live in a post-Genesis 3 world where everything's broken, including God's image in our lives are shattered, still there, but marred. Where can we find this internal rest? Well, you go to the New Testament, and interestingly, you see Jesus having to say something about that. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28? He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." What kind of rest is he talking about? It's not physical rest, obviously. He's talking about an REM sleep of the soul. He's talking about a rest within the rest. It's a rest from ever wondering again whether or not I'm enough. Am I enough? Have I preached well enough? Has the people that come to church made me feel enough today? We're all plagued by it. What we need is the kind of rest that Adam and Eve must have felt when God said his work is finished and declared them to be very good. You are very good. You are very good. Rest of soul. That's what our hearts need to hear. But when are we ever going to hear those words again? When are we ever going to hear those words again after the fall? Well, we do. God did say those words again. This time, though, not in a garden, but on a cross. What did Jesus say with his dying breath after he accomplished the work of our redemption? What did he say? It is what? finished what's done not the work of creation but the work of recreation we're new creatures the same God that said it is finished in the garden said it again on a cross and now he can look at those who receive this gift he can look at you in the eye and say very good you are very good not because of what you've done not because of what you've accomplished, not because of your religious accolades, not because of your moral deeds, not because of what your career says. You are very good because Christ has finished the work. You're enough, more than enough, beyond enough. And now, because you know your worth, you're you're gonna stop looking for it at the office. (laughs) Your your job is no longer going to be this judgment place in which your worth depends on. It's just gonna be a job. It's just a job. You're gonna look for it on the cross. Rest yourselves in Christ. Stop making your work about you. You're enough. Make it about creating Christ centered culture. In whatever work God's tasked you with in this particular season of your life. It might change, but for now, what is it? Your office, at, at, at your in- industry, if you're that influential in your industry, at home, in your classroom maybe, take whatever resources God's given you there and create a symphony of good, a culture that mirrors him, his goodness, his ethics, his integrity, his justice, his mercy and grace and if God's people do that may the whole world sing his praises as it mirrors his goodness for his glory because as an old theologian once said there is not a square inch in this whole domain of our human existence over which Christ does not cry mine make it his wherever God's place you to work at let's pray God may your people truly be so satisfied in you in the work of your redemption in the fact that we have an identity now not only made as your image but also fully redeemed and made beautiful as a treasure that you deem to die for on a cross to finish the work on our behalf to where now you can truly, we can truly look at you and not see a face of anger. We can look at you and not see a face of disappointment, of constant begrudgingness, but a face of a father who smiles lovingly to his children no matter what sins have marred your image in our lives, in Christ we rest and we see a father smiling as if he's looking upon Christ himself, you extend that face to us. Really protect us, Father, for making our work and our jobs about us. Help us make it about you. Teach us the wisdom and all the details that perhaps this sermon could not cover about how to do that practically in each person's day-to-day jobs here. Give them wisdom to do so. Tell them how. But For now, let them rest. As I sing this last song, let them rest. Let me rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.